This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Hello, everybody. Pete Caliendo, Baseball Outside the Box. Hey, thanks for joining us this evening. We are in our Chicago studios, and we want to welcome everybody in the U.S. and around the world. Thanks for joining us again. This is going to be another fantastic show. Been waiting for this show for a while, and I'll tell you why. Because this gentleman is all over the place. Um, he has spoken at the Texas Florida Baseball Ranches. He's very popular, um, specifically because it deals with uh, you know coaching and how to enhance your coaching ability. He's, um, he's the uh, professor at ASU, experimental psychologist, sports scientist also, training consultant, skill acquisition and motor learning researcher. I um, mean, he's a host of a fantastic podcast, Perception and Action podcast. I've listened to it and I was just telling him that sometimes I've got to listen to it a couple of times, I think, because these guys are really, really good at what they do. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I know a lot of you guys already know Rob, but let me welcome Rob Gray. Rob, how you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, Pete. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Well, be, between this, um, your work at the university, I'm sure you're on Zoom a lot. And I know that, <laughs> yes. I know you've got some great shows. I just finished watching one of your shows um, with some great experts. Uh, and you bring experts not only in the U.S., but all over the world. And you've studied, oh, excuse me, you've taught in the U.K., also in France and with the, and you're currently working with the Air Force also. So I think that, that's outstanding. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I've kind of been around. <laughs> I've kind of dabbled with sports science is my main passion, but I've also kind of been done performance research in other domains with like Air Force pilots and things on driving safety and things like that. Uh, Let me well. ask you, before we get into the heart of this, when you're talking about, you know, all the work that you've done, um, but you have to apply it to coaching. Um, I know you've had coaches on your shows. Mm-hmm. How difficult is that? Do you have to put yourself in the shoes of the coaches also, or is it all science-based? No, that's really, it. I do. It's a real challenge. Um, I really appreciate the interactions. I, I'm not a coach at all. <laughs> I, I like to, the, I work with teams a lot as consultants, but most of what I do is coach education. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the, the biggest asset I could, way I could help is make a coach look good. <laughs> instead of trying to do their job for them, because I'll never be able to do that well. <laughs> I don't have the, the skills for it. Um, but yeah, it is challenging. And it's really helped me, my research, actually, by interaction with coaches, you understand whether, begin to understand, think about how you actually apply some of this stuff, and it'll actually work. And some of the stuff you realize just does not make any sense at all <laughs> when you try to actually apply it on the field. So it, that's been a real help to me as well. On my so side. you're bouncing this off of coaches that you know, and what mm-hmm. are, are they testing it on their kids and with practices individually, with team practices? Is that how pretty much it flows to, to get the understanding? Is this something that we want to start applying more? Yeah, exactly. So I've done, I've done a bunch of studies where I brought, I brought uh, players into my lab, research lab, and tested them, trained them. Most of those have been college-level players and some high school-level uh, more recently, I've been, you know, starting to get with some of the team in Arizona. Obviously, I have the, the Cactus League. All half oh, yeah. the teams are here all year, and and so um, 
uh, I do meet with some of them and, you know, we talk about specific issues with specific players, you know, a designing practice to address, you know, particular issues. If you have, you know, a player that, a pitcher that you, you, you want to change something about their technique, uh, things like that. And then I just, just kind of do general um, presentations to the coaching staff uh, to talk about this thing. And, and sometimes they get interested in things like eye tracking. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of teams have gotten interested in using eye trackers. So it, sometimes I meet with them to talk about that technology and applying it, things like that. Rob, does this, you know, does it change? Because, you know, if we're talking about coaches that are working with you, I grew up at 37 years ago, started coaching at Mickey Own Baseball School, which is a school that kids came from all over the world, you know, and, you know, we had kids eight years old all the way to older guys, actually professionals too. Um, does, it, does this change when you're working with an eight-year-old or when you're working with a, a college player as far as, you know, uh, adapting all this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, uh, I, I think there are a lot of the principles you can apply. I get, you know, some, obviously some of the issues, uh, some of the opportunities you have, right? The, the, once you get to the higher level, the opportunities, the more time you have to work one-on-one -on -one with the players and <laughs> that you, you never have time for that, you know, in practice with kids, you, you, you know, very often. So, um, so you get different opportunities and you're working on different things. You're working on more kind of you know, sometimes you talk about optimizing, you know, not, not just trying to make huge changes, really kind of fine tuning uh, certain aspects of skill. So um, I think a lot of the principles are the same. You just focus on different things. Okay. Um, mm. Now let's get into it. Let's talk about, because we, we're talking about the different approaches in skill training when it comes to baseball. What, what, let's lay out the groundworks. What are some of those different approaches? And then we can get into some of the heart of it. Yeah. So the, I'm, I myself and, a, and a, quite a few other people in the, the motor learning skill acquisition area are kind of pitching a different, some, some people don't think it's a different view, but we do <laughs> um, kind of moving away, kind of the, the traditional way of coaching where you coach towards this ideal technique, right? So mm -hmm. I, I know the proper way to swing. I'm going to coach. I'm going to coach by making you try to repeat it over and over and over again in a really stripped down environment so hitting off a tee over mm -hmm. and over again until you get the swing looking the way i want it if you don't do it right i'm going to correct it i'm going to keep stepping in and say no you know you need to keep hip you hinge this way and sure. do that um <laughs> moving i grew up on that <laughs> yeah yeah so so and there's place for some things like that but moving towards a, a more um environment where you let the athlete kind of find the technique that works best for them on their own so you, you use a more, you, your coaches, the, sometimes we say changing the coach from an instructor where I know the solution here it is to the coach as a designer. I'm going to create a practice environment to help you find what works for you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to not, doesn't mean I'm not going to step in and do stuff, but I'm just going to be more, a little flexible. Yeah. And on that, just because I think you bring up a very good point. It's the only reason I interrupted um, no, go for it. is because that's my question would be, there's that fine line because of the fact that, yes, it's fun for the player to figure it out on their own. We set up the atmosphere for them or the, or the situation. Um, and it's more, you know, it's not as boring. Let's put it that way. But then at the same time, a coach with some pretty good knowledge can kind of speed up that process. So I use this example. You look at a lot of Latin players. I've been in Dominican Republic, Cuba, a lot of places where exactly what you're talking about, not Cuba as much, but Dominic, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, 
where exactly what you're saying happens. Guys have to figure it out on their own. And a lot of times they're not laying anything out for them. These kids have to figure it out on their own from scratch. Um, so where's that fine line where the coach now steps in and, and to speed up the process possibly? Yeah, so I think the coach, you just have to be kind of very selective about what you – so you have to kind of have these key features, a small number of things that you're looking for, um, and then, then around that let kind of the athlete do what they want, right? So mm. when you see an athlete do something, your, your athlete do something you, you know is kind of lead to injury or not be effective – then you can kind of step in. And, and also the way you step in is kind of different. Mm. Um, instead of trying to correct it with a lot of, you know, do this with your arm, do this with your elbow. One of the approaches we use, you may have, some of the people may have heard of, it's called the constraints led approach. Mm -hmm. So we add something to the practice to kind of push you away from that. Yeah. <laughs> what you're doing now to sometimes we say destabilize it so that, that what you're doing now doesn't work anymore. We want you to make you find something else yeah. is that like putting a, a heavier object in your hand or a longer bat or something different exactly yeah uh, the example i always use in baseball my favorite one is the connection ball in pitching mm -hmm. yeah. so if a pitcher's arms yep. flying out too far while they're pitching so in the, if you just let a pitcher play around and then you go whoa their arms separating way too early as a coach you want to step in and do something right that's going to lead to injury sure. and it's so a connection ball if you make them hold a like a kid's rubber ball between their forearm and mm -hmm. a bicep and you tell them pitch and make the ball connection ball go forward. Right. So if they keep their arm in, that will happen. Right. But you're not, so you're not telling them how to do it though. You're just giving this, adding that constraint and you're letting them figure it out. Um, and so we never we, know, uh, Rob, we mm -hmm. never know uh, when this, when this constraint object, whatever it may be, it could work for one, not work for another. And also, um, we don't know the, the time re reference when the actual arm's going to understand the right motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, what you're doing, the connection ball, I really like because you're giving the athlete feedback. The athlete can see it. Well, the ball went to the side that time. Mm. Oh, it went a bit more forward this time. Oh, maybe. I'll <laughs> and so they yeah. kind of figure it out on their own. I, I think that's a, a good example. But yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize it's not saying the coach stands back and does, does nothing. It, mm -hmm. It's a really, it's, it's a, it's a very, it takes a lot of knowledge and be a really good coach to be able to do this, right? To know, stand back and know how, and then when an athlete doesn't respond to a constraint, like you said, it happens, then you got to try something else. <laughs> and yeah. so it's, it's a, there's still a huge role for the coach in understanding this, the skill itself. Yeah. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you have to do your homework and research and have plenty in your toolbox to mm -hmm. be able to give to your players. So I, I think it makes it even fun, not just for the player, but also for the coach, because we're not just there. Because I remember giving private lessons 25 years ago, and what was it? I could almost put on a tape recorder and let the tape recorder do it, because I was saying the same thing over and over again. Well, that you know, now I realize maybe, you know, at that time, whatever we knew we did, and it worked for it worked okay, but now there's a better process to speed it up. Yeah, I think so. I think it can it can help. And the other thing we find, you know, the other one of the areas I've done a research a lot on is pressure. You know, why people struggle under pressure. And huh. one of the things that happens is people kind of get in their head and they start overthinking. I'm, I'm sure as, if your co coaches have, you've met some kid that 
shows up and they've got all this <laughs> thinking going through. They're thinking about their technique way too much and trying to get them to. So getting people to think about their body when they move too much, is kind of, I think it's kind of dangerous, <laughs> right? You don't want to be thinking about your, how your arm's moving and you, you want to kind of let it flow. Your, your, your conscious part of your brain is not fast enough <laughs> to keep up with the, your body. You want to kind of let it go on its own. Well, I certainly understand the pressure because preparing for this show, I was under pressure because, you know, I'm looking at, you know, and I've heard you talk, I've heard your podcast. Yeah. I mean, you bring, you know, when you bring in top experts, yes, you're talking about some complicated issues and you try to make it as simple as possible, but sometimes, you know, it just isn't simple. There is some complicated issues and you guys happen to debate some of them. And I guess I almost, I want to get to the pressure part, but I want to ask you this. Sure. Um, you know, I always said on the show, don't let the Japanese listen to Rob Gray or, you know, some of the things we're talking about because the Japanese for years and still pretty close, not much. I've done a lot of work there, but some of them have changed are pretty much, you know, cookie cutter teachers. I mean, they just do it over and over. When you, when you tell a Japanese kid, here's how you hold the ball, he'll go for hours that way. So he never forgets how to hold it. When you tell him about ground balls, you know, he does it over and over, over and over, over and over. Yet they've been pretty successful. And you guys have debated this, I think, on your show about two types of systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And you, excuse me, you do see that. You see that kind of prototypical Japanese pitching delivery, right? <laughs> that a lot of people have. It's kind of a unique. And the um, hitting, everything. Yeah. The fielding, and it's all you know, based on repetition, repetition, repetition. In a certain degree, yeah, um, but they also do some things that kind of go against that. One of the things um, I think it's Japan, Japan does is they, correct me if I'm wrong, they regularly employ pitchers. Oh, absolutely. Pitchers to throw batting practice. They, they, they were the first ones to do that. They throw yeah. not only batting practice, but different pitches and make it tough on the hitter. They, they're yeah. way ahead of us on that. So, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. So at the same time, maybe they're, they're doing this, they're adding a lot of, that's a, the other side of the coin is, is to this is adding more variability to practice conditions, mm -hmm. right? Um, having more rep, more realistic practice conditions, <laughs> like baseball is, is the classic for, uh, you know, the traditional batting practices. I always say it's like, it's like in tennis, if Roger Federer warmed up against a 10 year old right? For Wimbledon. It's yeah, like, right. <laughs> the speed is like so different than what you're going to face. So um, it, it, um, so they, they've been good on that side of things. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it is really debated on how, to what extent. And the, the thing about this is we're not saying one works and one doesn't. It's more about kind of relative because mm. a lot of, a lot of things will work. <laughs> well, human beings are made to learn and get better almost, you know, the classic placebo effect. Yes. You do nothing, people will get better. They'll, they'll on their figure own, it out. Much. Yeah. Yeah. So, where do we? So, if I'm, if I'm just starting, um, you know, see if this makes sense. I'm just starting. Of course, I want to work on the fundamentals and the repetition a little bit. And then, as mm -hmm. I get comfortable, I think that's what the Japanese are, are thinking. As you get comfortable and get pretty good at it, now you've got to include variability because that's what really happens in, in the actual game. If you don't add that variability, then it's hard to to uh, adjust. And then you talk about the pressure aspect, kind of add all that together. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's kind of one way to go about it is kind of the in middle ground is, is kind of, um, you know, to me, it's you're teaching adjustability, right? So you want to teach this basic technique and then teach the athlete to be able to adjust it, 
right? And the lot, one way that I've seen a lot of people do this and now in batting practice, for example, is you use different T locations and T heights. Mm -hmm. So it, you're adding a little bit of variability. It's still not as much as you're going to get in a real pitch, but um, you're trying to get, make the batter. You want them to have this basic core technique and, and, and be able to adjust it uh, to different pitches, different, you know, hit, trying to hit the opposite way if you want to go that far. But um, so that's kind of one way. That's maybe the way that they're doing it. Um, the way that kind of we're, a lot of us, a lot of other people are posing are kind of skipping that, that skill, the repetition stage altogether mm. and going mm. more. So I, I'd say it's adaptability instead of adjustability. So you're teaching the batter to, to be able to just generate different movements for uh, right from the start, right. And, and different movement patterns. It's a big leap <laughs> for coaches that are used to doing the kind of the drills. Yes. So I, I recognize that it's a, it's a big leap, but, but I think the variability, mm -hmm. but it's interesting. I'll tell you why. And folks, I just want to remind you that, you know, remember on the show, I love for our people listening to ask the questions because I want your questions answered, not particularly mine. So don't forget on Twitter, Facebook, and also on Zoom, just type in the question. If you want to come in live on Zoom and ask directly to Rob, just let me know on mic and that'd be no problem. Let me ask you this. Um, I'm remembering when I'm working with real young kids, uh, we, I used to say we don't give them enough credit, meaning they can do a lot of things in a lot of different ways. You don't have to teach them one step at a time. I realized that after a certain point, rolling ground balls to the right and left, they're mixing it up, trying to fake them, you know, trying to let them make decisions. So that's what you're saying is we don't have to get right to the fundamental only. We can actually teach the fundamental in different ways. Yeah, and I saw the question pop up there. Why not teach the fundamentals? <laughs> oh, you're faster um, than so, me. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what I'll say is, so I'm, I'm kind of going to talk about the whole range. So you go. Where Perfect. I believe things are way over here. Perfect. Um, so my belief is there are no fundamentals. There are, we move differently every way. And the, the, big, the best example I can give is, who taught you the fundamentals of how to run? Was your dad out on the driveway with you saying your no. leg needs to be here? You need to put. No, you not even riding a bike. Yeah, no one taught you the fen the fundamentals of the technique. But we think in other, every other skill, we kind of have a golf. You have to have your knees like this, and you're right. Um, I think there's a cute few key things you want to avoid, right? Like I said, with the arm example, flying out. But other than that, I think we don't give enough room for individuality and letting people, you know, um, explore different movement solutions. But as I said, that's way over here. <laughs> that's really my, my strong belief. And, and but um, just that's so, kind that of one question, theory. Let yeah. me ask you to that question. Um, if we start off with, with a, you know, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, and they're just getting started, there's nothing wrong with teaching some basic fundamentals, but then also mixing it up. Um, the, to me, it's, it's giving them uh, you know, so what I would rather do is kind of scale down the task and make it a bit easier for them and then just let them still kind of, you know, the term we use in this area is self-organize, mm -hmm. right? So figure out how to do the task and you step in where you see, if you see things, but like, like I said, I don't personally, I don't believe in, okay, when you're hitting, you need to keep your elbow in. When you're hitting, you need to keep your back, you know, teaching things like that. I don't sure. personally believe that. I know a lot of other people do, and it's been done for a long time. Um, but I don't think there, there is a 
you know, a proper way to swing. There's a proper outcome you want, but there's lots of different ways to achieve that. Um, as I said, that's kind of the one extreme view. That's of, good. Of no, no, I like that. Uh, yeah. No, no, and I certainly understand it because what yeah. you're trying to you're trying to let the body utilize itself and get the feel for how to do it on its own. Mm -hmm. And then you can be there to apply certain things, like you said, either constraints or it could be objects, right? That maybe they're trying to hit a certain object out in the field where they're not worried about their swing because as you said, mentally, that, that damages everything when you're thinking about your swing and then you're trying to hit a ball and another object. Yeah, and um, another way, there, there is still also room, a con, another type of constraint, you, like a instruction is a constraint a cue from the coach. Mm -hmm. So the other kind of way we do it, you know, cueing more uh, weight, not using bodily cue cues. Sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes they're called internal focus cues. Yeah. So talking about your body and moving more about the effect of the movement or an analogy to, you know, um, you know, you want your arm to move like a jackhammer or something, you know, something like that. So that's another way that it can be done. But um, um, what about external so, yeah. cues? Yeah, so get them focused on, on the effect of their movement or the, the, the environment rather than too much on the body. Um, that, that's another kind of thing that goes along with this often. Mm -hmm. Rob, where else are, are we heading possibly in the wrong, you know, I'm not trying to be negative, but in a wrong direction when it comes to teaching an individual skill and also a team skill? Uh, what other areas are we, are we kind of going in the wrong direction? Um, how do you mean like, well, the, then we have to be careful that we're, we're, we may be thinking we're teaching the right thing, but yet it's not the right thing. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's just different approaches to me. The biggest, um, worry I have is kind of when people are kind of inconsistent with mm -hmm. their, their, their methods. Right. So a lot of people are starting to hear about these self-organization and, and it's kind of a sexy term now sure. and people are, are adding a whole bunch of variability so adding variability to practice is a good example think i, I want you think about what what you're trying to achieve with that so if you're trying to achieve that adjustability i mentioned so you really believe there is one proper way to hit then stick with that belief and and use variability for adjustability like mm. so right but if you are willing to if you do accept that there there isn't really a proper technique. There's lots of different ones you have to use depending on the situation. Then you use variability kind of in a different way. So that's kind of the, the biggest thing. I'm not trying to, you know, argue that I know this is the right way. This is the way I believe that I think um, it's the better way based on the, the work I've done, but I, I'm not going to, you know, it's not the other way has been around for a long time, the traditional way. And, but the, what worries me is when coaches kind of mix and match approaches. Doesn't mean you can mix and match. Shouldn't, you should mix and match methods like kind of consistent of, with the approach you have overall. So you should have a philosophy, I think, as a coach and stick with it. <laughs> when you say mix and match, explain that a little bit more. So when I, what I'm seeing now is, so coaches will spend a long time, you know, training, drilling a particular technique, a particular batting or pitching technique. And then they've read somewhere, they've heard about this kind of constraints or variability. And so they'll just throw that on top um, a great example of this, actually, let me give you a soccer example. <laughs> um, so, so in soccer, um, I'll, I'll, I've seen this so many times in practice. S soccer, one of the things, kind of manipulations we use in, in practice to let players learn to explore and pass is what's called a small-sided game. 
So basically, you reduce the number of players in space on the field, mm-hmm. and, and it gives people more interaction. So coaches have read about – so coaches spend a whole bunch of time drilling the players about where to pass, and then they've probably read about the small-sided game thing, and they'll start doing it. And I've watched them. And like within a minute, they're jumping on the field saying, no, you should have passed there. You should have done <laughs> – right? So they're mixing – if you want to tell players, teach them where they should pass. Gotcha. and then, but if you're th- trying to throw this small-sided game, it's not going to work if you jump in and correct. You've, you've kind of defeated the purpose of it. Um, so the same with variability. If you're going to add a whole bunch of variability for the purpose of letting someone explore, but you're going to jump in and keep correcting the movement, then, then you're really kind of going two different ways. So I don't think it'll be effective. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, I know a lot of countries, you know, being on, on the World Baseball Softball Confederation Tournament Committee, I see a lot of countries, what they're doing, and a lot of them have gone to smaller games for younger players, you know, so they touch the puck more, they touch the ball more, um, and they're playing the games a little faster, so there's a little bit more fun into it. Like you said, they're making decisions because, you know, and that's one thing I always argued. We don't allow young kids, and and again, I don't know the science, you do, but we don't allow the young kids to make decisions young enough. You know, we always want to tell them where to run, when to do this, when to do that, you know, when the ball's right in front of them, they can make that decision. And you know what? If they make a bad decision, how, you know, how better can you learn by making mistakes? Yeah. No, that's another thing that we kind of go against. So the traditional approach is I'm going to teach you all the fundamentals first, and then kind of plug it into the game where you make decisions, right? Another, like soccer is an example. I'm going to make you dribble around cones. So you learn the basic technique first then you, you will put you in a situation where you get to make decisions. I'd much rather train both of those at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Because movements have a function, right? They have a purpose. And when you, um, what we call is it, the, the, the name of my podcast is Perception Action Podcast. And, and uh, at the end, I always say, keep them coupled. Um, because what we want to try to do is keep perception and action linked all the time. Because actions are driven by perceptions, vice versa, right? So um, a swing is caused by the ball flight so when you take away the ball flight like on a tee you really are you're going to learn different movements and and, and it really kind of limits what you can achieve with that so so yeah so i think um i think that's an important point that decision picking up information to control your action is is really is really key love it and i'm going to take a question from our great friend jim jones and not only the college coach but also He's taught all over the world. Um, he's one of the leaders in international baseball when it comes to especially working with coaches. Um, and he mm-hmm. says, you know, we're very, and we're really familiar with the Bernstein principle that the body will organize itself in accordance with the overall goal of activity. However, does that guarantee that the results would be the most effective or efficient? Okay. Um, the, yeah, great gold star for mentioning Bernstein. Yeah, Nikolai Bernstein was a Russian uh, physiologist yeah. who um, he came up with this term we like to use called repetition without repetition. So you, to, in order to repeat uh, an outcome like barreling a ball or hitting your target and pitching, you can't do it by repeating the movement because it's going to be different every time. That, that's his basic idea. Yeah, no, there's no, we don't know whether self-organization leads to a better, you know, the, the assumption is going to lead to a better solution for the individual than the one that that's a coach comes up with and gives to the same 
uh, one to every person. That's the assumption. And there's research now we're trying, I'm doing some trying to directly compare the methods. Hmm. But there are, one of the things that gonna happen is that this is a, like what I said, where the coach steps has gonna step in. People are gonna self-organize to something that might not be the most efficient or the most effective. Um, people are really lazy <laughs> learners in general. So if you create, a, it's really, a lot of it's with the practice design. Like another example I like to give in baseball is hitting off a pitching machine. Mm -hmm. So if you hit off a pitching machine with the setting always the same, you can learn to be a really lazy learner and basically learn to time your swing by even the sound of the pitching machine or how far the ball comes out. When the ball gets a certain distance away, you can start your swing. So you can learn um, the solution. You can self-organize to the solution but as soon as you're in a game where pitch speeds are varying, that's not going to work anymore. So people will kind of settle in these solutions that when, if you let them self-organize, um, that's why, you know, self-organization, the goal is for the long run, right? The goal is for the future. It's to learn. So a lot of it is going to involve pretty messy looking performance in practice, right? They're going to be flailing around trying to find something that might not look good and might be ineffective. That's why an another really critical aspect of using all this as a coach is creating an environment where athletes don't have to look good all the time, right? Where you say, you know, it's okay if you, I want you to try this. <laughs> I want you to try throwing with a silly ball on your arm or use a different weight and you might fail for a while. That's okay. Cause failing's where learning occurs, right? Mm -hmm. If you do everything perfect, you don't learn anything. Um, so, uh, that's, so yeah, I think back to the first person for the part, the question, yeah, there's no way there's, you know, you are going to get a lot of inefficient solutions and things, but you have to step in. Um, the idea though, is a person's going to find one that's the best fit for them. Um, their, their indiv individual constraints, we call it their height, their, their flexibility and so on. Yeah. You know, I learned it, I guess, I, you know, I didn't even realize this. I learned that when I was given lessons to young kids a long time ago, um, you know, I used to, let's say you're tossing a ball underhand in those days, you know, in front from the front side, I, you know, we used to throw it straight and, and decent speed, and then they could hit it, you know, because they knew, they knew the speed because we threw it the same way all the time. Then all of a sudden I slowed it down. That's when they struggled. Then I started figuring out, well, then why don't I just mix it up and let, let them figure it out because it'll be a lot more fun for them. I mean, again, mm -hmm. without having any science, I, I just realized why not change it up because variability is pretty good for young kids too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, variability kind of makes you learn uh, a solution that's going to be more adaptable, right? A more gen, it's going to work in a broader range of conditions. Like, like said, like in golf, if you only practice on a flat ground, how are you supposed to know how to hit a golf shot when you have a downhill lie, right? Mm -hmm. Why would you know how to do that if you never experienced that in practice, right? It, you're just going to have to, you're probably going to do a terrible job of it. You're going to have to have that happen to you a few times so yeah i think if you do so variability whichever way you use it is, is a low-hanging fruit i think in yes. baseball training yeah rob we're we're uh what's the best what's the sport that's more advanced than any other sport when you when it comes to this type of concepts um that's a good question uh the, actually well baseball is is really one of the better sports right now for people like you, all of you being willing to kind of listen to sports science and, and, and interested in 
taking all this information in. It's wonderful. They're so open um, it, compared to like football, <laughs> where, you know, if you didn't play, you know, you know less, uh, there's less kind of uh, interest in, in that science side of things. But um, I think, you know, soccer for a while has, has had a lot of this, um, some of the track and field kind of a bit. There, it, it kind of varies. There, there, there's a lot of traditional a way of doing things too but um as i said a lot of the teams so most of the teams i've i visited around the valley and stuff have you could see <laughs> things starting to change they're at various levels of where they are in this but a lot of people are starting to adopt a lot of these kind of things you know i wanted to because i'm going to get to a question because i noticed that something that was on my notes um, mm -hmm. particularly because brett strom's a pitching coach for the houston astros and he, he's a brilliant person and he uh, just a great person too, a good friend of ours. Um, he asks, he says, uh, have you have you been talk, talk you've been talking about self-organized physical movement? Does the same principle apply to the game time strategy, such as a, a college coaches calling pitches? Um, because you know, if if college coaches don't call pitches and things go wrong, they get fired. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where if you know, I'm a youth coach, you know. I can let the kids do it. It's not the end of the, it's not the end of the world, but the college level they you know, they can be, they're taking more control at the college level. That makes sense. Yeah. So you're talking about an athlete learning um, kind of strat, like a pitcher learning when to throw their own certain pitches. pitches and, and certain counts. Yeah. Um, I, th I would think the same, the same principle would apply. Like you would learn, um, it's very difficult and you're right in traditional baseball, <laughs> the way it's taught and it's, maybe it's a lot of a load to put on the pitcher to try to learn, um, you know, this kind of tactical, but you can, so for example, in, in soccer and things too, you, you teach tactical things the, in the same way, um, kind of strategical, you know, when to drive to the net, when to pass, you know, you can, we can teach it in the same way. So I think in principle we could, but I can, I can see the difficulty as you say, um, getting a pitcher to to try to do all of this at once would be really demanding. Yeah. Again, again, let, but let me ask you this, and, and I'm going to have, if Brent needs to add to that, because I may have yeah, just, yeah. you know, destroyed his whole question. But um, if, if you take it at a younger level and you start them younger at making those decisions, um, and again, I'm just using common sense, when I get to high school, I'm going to be a little bit better at it. If I'm allowed to do it there a little bit more, I'm going to get even better. By the time I get to college, I'm a little bit more prepared. And maybe that college coach doesn't have to address or uh, take, give the signs as much or make the decisions as much. I mean, that's just, you know, I'm thinking that off the top of my head. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Some, uh, another term you might hear uh, science <laughs> in term is affordance. So, uh, people perceive these affordances, opportunities to act for act to action. So you learn when to use certain things and and how if, if you're given an opportunity. So I think that's kind of what we would see if if you gave people the chance. And you would think in the long run it would be better because a pitcher knows themselves; they know where they're at at that moment that the coach doesn't. Right? Um, you know, they know what they're feeling, what the pitches are. I guess you know the coaches. Coach in the back edge are trying to know whether they have a good curveball today. They do have some of that information, but not as yeah, well as a pitcher. Yeah, they've got some research on the hitters yeah. and understanding yeah. of the hitters. Um, yeah, there's a fine that's line the other there. Thing. Mm -hmm. What what about that's the, the thing. Go ahead, go ahead. You, no, no, you go. Yeah, that's the other thing that a lot of this this is kind of external information that you'd have to to keep it all in your head and kind of process it. it might be a bit a bit demanding. 
Um, so it might be a combination yeah, of both in some ways. Both. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about team strategy? Let, let's say I'm trying to teach. This is interesting um, because I've debated this a little bit. Um, I got my team and we're going to go over bunt situations, right? Mm-hmm. Man on first, bunt, what everybody does in the field. According to what you're talking about, what's the best system, how to start? And I realize we, we could be talking about 10-year-olds, high school kids, college kids. So you have to take that in consideration. But where do you start? Where's the best way to start? And I'll give you an example of a good friend of mine in hockey, NHL hockey. He won't draw things up on a board. He thinks it's a waste of time, and I agree with him. Um, mm. But go ahead. I'm going to let you go. Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same, the, that, that limit, that kind of technical instruction about you go here. And, and so, um, um, yeah, I would, I, I prefer to do it on the field and let kind of, you know, some basic, um, let people figure out, you know, when, where they should go and when. Um, the big thing, again, I see there's the variability. <laughs> um, I see a lot of um, teams, um, I, when I walk around the training, I call it, they're doing a dance recital, Right. Um, they're doing bunt drills where everybody knows exactly where the ball's going and what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So it looks amazing. They look super efficient. Like, as I said, they've rehearsed this, but that's not where, that's not how you learn. That's not how you get better. Right. You have to have unpredictability where the ball's going to go and variability. Um, put it right between two players, you know, have them who goes, covers the bag, who goes for the ball kind of decisions. Um, so I think, you know, you do need to give them the basic rule, like ideas, maybe, maybe a, a whiteboard's good for that. Like, you know, you have to cover this bag when the, this person goes for that, the ball. But I think you're going to really learn all, all the how to do it in, in, in the real situation, right? And, I think and you could to, isolate, you don't have, obviously don't have to use the whole field. You could isolate just the, you know, half the field kind of drills and stuff. Yeah. But we, don't we, we also have to take into account um, that individuals learn different ways too, like, me, I'm not going to learn visually by watching a mm-hmm. board. Um, I've got to do it. So I imagine some kids are visual. Some you have to do it. Some are, you know, have to listen to you say it. Whatever it may be, there's different ways to learn. Um, so th- do you have to understand that also? Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good question. We've kind of backed off a bit on that. The learning styles idea. Yeah. Um, it's kind of been debunked a little bit. Um, that people have, re- individuals have really different learning styles. People have, it's more of a preference thing. People, mm. so it's still there a little bit. Um, so, but I think it's really good to teach in lots of multimodal teaching, lots of different ways. Um, some, you know, right, some verbal, some demonstration. Um, demonstrations are really good, you know, uh, as we call it observational learning. So if I can watch you do something. It's a really effective way to teach. Um, instead of you telling me how to do it, just I get to observe and take from it. Um, the so I think, but I so I still think it's good to have lots of different modes and kind of let people get out of it what you you will. But um, as I say, that learning styles kind of thing is something we've dropped a bit in the science side of things. Yeah. And again, I'm going to throw things out because I'm just, and then you Go you tell it. me. You know, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking of what some of the things I do. You know, one of the things that I've changed is, like you said. I, you know, on a, on a bunch situation, if I'm going to teach it, I'm going to lay out the situation and then I'm going to let them do it because I mm-hmm. want to figure out what they know and what they don't know. Because if I teach it ahead of time, I feel like I'm wasting time um, mm-hmm. because I'm telling them something they may already be doing that they may do mm-hmm. right. So why teach it if I've only got so much time? So now once you've seen them do it, I would assume you can make corrections. I mean, am I, am I going in the right direction and can I add to that? 
Yeah, so you mean if someone goes does the wrong thing on a bunt drill? Well, then I can make yeah. the correction. But but yeah. if I let, let's say if I told the first baseman, here's what you're going to do in this situation, right? I spent mm -hmm. time doing that. I tell the second baseman, I spent time doing that. The shortstop, I'm explaining all this, right? Or I'm showing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Well, why not just do it first and then figure out who did it wrong and then make the adjustment? Because you might only have one person doing it wrong. Yeah, I think so. I think that's, that's a good way. I think you could also give people goals. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, I want you to charge on this one. I want you to be really aggressive on this one. So that's totally okay. You're just not telling them exactly how to move and do it, right? Right. Um, but you're right. Yeah, I think they, people need to know the basic rules and the basic <laughs> uh, things. But beyond that, yeah, you're right. Probably just let it go and see what happens and, and then try to push it around as you see. Rob, how do you add the pressure? How, what, what's your suggestion there when you say, because, you know, I want to go back to that because you mentioned pressure. That's one of the mm. most difficult things that I guarantee you that's where I failed. I was I was that mechanical guy who I remember Ernie Banks, you got a great swing. Yeah, well, that's great. But I hit 200. So mm. I, I, because I couldn't deal with the pressure, I think. Yeah, no, it is really, it is very variable. Like some people handle it fine and other people really struggle. And what I found works best is, um, so I've done in research, I've done lots of studies. Um, what I found is most people want to try to do like competitive pressure, like in a game, the game's on the line. So you could put, you know, tell your team, whoever, if you get a hit, the next person to get a hit wins, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I find that the, that kind of pressure doesn't really work well in practice because um, there, there's no way we can get it up to the level of the real game in practice. There's just no way. Um, we can turn it up to that high. What I find works better in my studies and, and in practice too is kind of social pressure. Um, so making you on a team and saying, uh, as a team, if you get this many hits, so where people you're kind of counting on, you, you group play, players together in batting practice and say, whoever the group of three that gets the most hits wins. And so they kind of have pressure to live up to their team. Another one that I've used before is making people, if you don't um, succeed, uh, you have to give a, a speech at the end of practice in front of oh, the yeah. team about <laughs> some topic, <laughs> which amazingly people hate doing that. So it kind of gives a, um, and then the third one is, is if you have kind of a series of drills, sometimes we call it the, the win, move, lose, stay. So if you don't succeed, you have to stay and keep doing this drill. If, you, if, you, if you're successful, you can move to the next one, the next activity. So those kind of things. But yeah, I think pressure is, it's really good if you can add a little bit in there. And um, it, it does actually, there's tons of research showing it actually helps learning. It doesn't just kind of insulate you against pressure. It actually helps you learn faster, get put adding a little pressure to things if you when, do it in the right way. When you're organizing a practice for a team, what are the, some of the key components um, to add in there? Now we talked about, uh, you know, variability, we talk about, you know, mm -hmm. different things that you just mentioned, but then you, you, I know you've also talked on neuroscience, you know, so now we're talking about vision, um, we're talking about the brain, but what do I add in practice, I guess, to complete the package so that way mm -hmm. my guys get a little bit better come game time? Yeah, so I think the first place to start is for me is what, ask yourself, what is the purpose of this practice session? or this activity. I don't think we do that enough. <laughs> Amazing. But, and one of the things I've been talking about a bit on the podcast, I think is, I think we, we should be periodizing skill training, just like we do, phys, you know, weightlifting. Um, because you can't, you can't push people with high variability and complexity and, and self-organization all the time. It's, it's way too demanding. 
And you don't really want to be doing that really close to a game or something. You don't want people to be messing around with a whole bunch of things. So I think you want to think, you know, is this a skill development drill? Then maybe I want a lot of that variability and stuff. Or is this a game, a drill close to a game, activity close to a game where I just want to get people confident and feeling good? And then probably I want maybe some low variability kind of uh, thing. So, so that's kind of the first place I would start, you know, what we're thinking. And then, yeah, what kind of aspect of, of the skill am I working on? Uh, you know, pitch recognition, you know, a uh, certain aspect of hitting, you know, and then kind of focus the, the practice activity along there. So really being, yeah, what, what's it for? <laughs> so a lot of the times when I work with teams, the, I just sit there and ask, keep asking why over <laughs> all the time, <laughs> why are you doing this? Um, and also making it, um, you know, thinking about the, another term we use is representativeness. You know, how does this represent? Um, I talked to a, um, a team once, a basketball team that had a shooter that they wanted to change their technique. And I kept asking why. And they said, because when they got fatigued in the fourth quarter, they would start missing shots. They would kind of lose their balance. And so I said, when do you practice with them? When do you practice shooting? At the start of practice. <laughs> so not so, when they're tired. Not when they're tired. Yeah, right. So you want to try to, you know, if it's something to do with fatigue, get them, make them, get them fatigued first. Um, if it's something to do with, you know, noise, add noise or whatever kind of thing you can, you can pick up. Yeah. All right. I'm going to take another question. I love the questions, everybody. Bring them on Facebook, Twitter, Zoom. Um, you know, this is a great time to ask your question. Okay. Young pitcher say 16 years old, throws 94 miles an hour, potential, oh, potential draft. Your mm -hmm. opinion of arm action is possible, is possible and injurious. He has gotten to, his, to this point. He has gotten to his, this point. Uh, sorry, I'm, he's, my fault. It just jumped on me. I apologize. He's gotten to this point self-organizing with limited instruction. How do you mm. nudge him toward that you know would be better for him in the long run? So he's gotten there on his own so far. How do you nudge him? Yeah, so this is a really challenging problem. I, you know, uh, I would say, you know, first, you know, make sure that, and I'm sure he does, this person does, make sure you, it's really something you think needs to be changed, not just kind of idiosyncrasy. Um, yeah, it's a really challenging problem. I think you need to... Um, it just telling them to change is probably not, I'm sure the experience is not effective. Um, another one I've done this a lot in, in my research is with football quarterbacks. Um, so I call it the Tim Tebow problem. <laughs> so in, in college, they're, in high school, they're really effective, but they hold the ball too low. So when they get tack, when players are defensive or faster, they don't have enough time and they get fumble more. So trying to get them to hold the ball up higher, a technical change. It's really challenging. But yeah, I think to me that that's the constraints. If you can think of some sort of constraint that whatever they're doing is not going to make it not work. So you're trying to destabilize some way. Um, so it really depends on exactly what it is. So I've done things like um, one another way you can do it is you can um, we call it amplifying the error. So um, if there's some way you can make kind of exaggerate, you, obviously in pitching, you have to be careful because <laughs> you can injure. But I, I've done things where I've had pitchers that land slightly off balance. They don't really land square on the foot. So what I have them do is pitch in sand. So it makes it even worse. <laughs> and they, so they kind of get to feel it. And, and so what they're doing kind of doesn't work as well anymore. So that's really what you're looking to do with the constraints. Um, kind of find some way 
a thing you can change the task so that, that, that what they're doing is not going to work? Because that's really the main way you can make a change. It's hard to make someone make a change if everything's working, right? Uh, people don't really have, you know, we don't really think long-term very well, right? That's why, you know, Lisa lose some weight and right, we're not, we, we want to think in the immediate success. So, yeah. You know, and the advantage, I'm, I'm just thinking of that question. What a great question. Um, mm -hmm. The advantage we have nowadays that we didn't have 30 years ago, I mean, sure we had video, but we don't have the science that shows us what possibly could be damaging my arm, you know, showing mm -hmm. the, the actual movements of the body, the pressure points. So now if you got a little bit of science, I imagine if you show that young person the science behind it, that hey, it's going to damage your arm because of what you're doing. It's got to add a lot more credibility than if, you know, me, Pete Caliendo as a coach says, well, I think you're going to get hurt in the long run because, you, you know, your arm's doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, the, uh, it, it's hard because there's not the, the num number of studies that actually show you this will end up in injury is actually mm. pretty small. There's, it's harder to do harder. than we think. But yeah, but I think giving feedback and, and the other one is that, you know, if you tell a person, I want you to change this and then you can show them on video or something. It, 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 athletes are, you know, they're competitive. If you give them a kind of a goal like that, sometimes that can help too. Um, with Pitt, it doesn't sound like it is this in this case because he's throwing so hard. But a lot of times um, pitchers with kind of the separation problem things, they could actually throw harder if they change too as well because kind of sure. they're breaking the kinetic link when mm -hmm. they're throwing if they mm -hmm. separate too early so you could actually convince them that you'd actually improve your performance too it's not just for injury but that, this case it doesn't sound because if you're throwing that hard already um, yeah and, the, and i'm assuming the top the yeah. hard ones are when they you know when they're so successful yeah. they're at the top of the peak you know yeah. they're less likely to listen sometimes but yeah. hopefully hopefully we get through to that young man yeah um, that but that technical change is a really difficult challenge it's one of the hardest things to do if you yeah. have someone that's succeeding and going back to the pressure one of the things you find if you kind of coach it the traditional way and and instruct it away as soon as they get in a situation game situation they snap back to the old technique anyway because it kind of it's still there um, so yeah, getting them to find something that works better. I know that's just a phrase, and, but it really depends on what it is. And, and, and that's kind of what I, what I would do. Yeah. I'm going to get the, I want to get the Jim Jones's question. Another very good one. He's going to throw me a curveball with a name, but I'll figure it out. Um, okay. here, uh, first of all, the 10,000 rule that we just throw that out the window pretty much. Yeah. The, the, um, <laughs> Erickson, the deliberate practice. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of, it's, it's, um, you know, a kind of a very simplification of. Um, you still got people debating you on it? Not really. We had no. we we had it. We were talking about. We're still talking about kind of that deliberate practice idea. Okay. But but I think it go. The general principle is still useful. I think you need a lot of practice. Like I said, where it's purposeful, focusing on getting better, not just doing the things you're good at already over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, the really great athletes are going to have a lot of that. <laughs> we, there's no magic number of it. But you do need to accumulate a certain amount of, you know, purposeful, uh, purposeful, deliberate practice designed to get better where you're going to sure. fail a certain amount of time. Yeah. And, and, and I think we've heard it said before, practice the things you're not good at, not because mm -hmm. you got to get better at those, too. Yeah. Um, all right. Carol, this is not, this is uh, the book from Carol Wick, Dwick, Fixed and Growth Mindsets. We know a growth mindset is the best. Yeah, is best. However, players won't get it just because you tell them they need 
need to have growth mindset. What are some effective coaching, teaching techniques to help players to develop that mindset? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, just challenging, I think, um, creating these challenges, um, getting, setting this environment, like I said, where it's okay to fail. And it's, you know, you're not, it's baseball is hard, right? Cause they, every player probably thinks there's a scout <laughs> sitting up in the stands and practice all the time. So they're worried about not looking good. So having that kind of changing that um, environment, I think is really uh, challenging people at the right level. Um, the kind of the number I, I, I say is around, you want people to succeed around 70 to 80% of the time um, and fail the rest of the time. If you do too much failure, people get, demotivated and frustrated um so i think that yeah i think that's it i think um a lot of you the stuff you mentioned with the technology where you can give people process feedback and kind of these metrics to to improve i think you know harness kind of the inherent comp you know competitiveness of athletes that get you know almost gamifying <laughs> like yeah. a video game i think <laughs> that can work with some people and um, but yeah, I think that that's a really great question. It is, it really is. You, you, and I'm sure as everyone knows, people differ so much in, in their motivations and why they do things. And that's, that's a bit outside of what I do. Um, mm -hmm. um, but it, it is really um, an important thing as well. You know, and the difficult part, I guess, of the, the sport is that don't forget, I mean, uh, you fail a lot at the sport, even though you're pretty yeah. good. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're exactly. successful in baseball, you're failing at a 70% rate when you're hitting yeah, just yeah. alone, not yeah, necessarily yeah. all the other positions. But um, what about the concept of, you know, that you've heard a lot of coaches teach, you know, when you're on defense, um, you know, all, all you have to do is think about what you're going to do. So if the ball sit to my right, I do this. If the ball sit to my left, I do that. If I, you know, ahead of time. Um, I've always mm -hmm. thought, I always just thought to myself, really, does that really work? Because does the brain work that fast? I mean, can I remember all that? Or does yeah. that come from practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of imagery, kind of research and things. Um, it does seem to be some benefits, kind of having in mind, kind of, you know, thinking about, um, you know, how you're going to respond. Um, you know, there's research that actually you, when you, when you do that kind of thing, you actually activate parts of your brain that are used in performing the action. So I think there's some merit to that, but <clears throat> you're right. There's not, you can't, it's not like you can know everything that's going to happen and you have to be kind of adaptable to, to things in between, right? You know, you know um, but I think having kind of a, you know, imaging and being prepared definitely, I think it, it can help. This comes up a lot on the show, but we just like to repeat it. Obviously, we talk about, about multi-sport athletes. You do the research. You know, uh, I mean, oh, way over 95% of major league players are multi-sport athletes. Um, you look at golfers. Uh, there's only one in the, in the PGA that was not a multi-sport athlete. So, I, you know, that obviously is a big benefit to be a multi-sport athlete, especially at that age of, you know, 8 to 12, what they call that window of trainability, I guess. Mm -hmm. what, what about – what sports help baseball the fastest? So if you're going to train with other sports, which ones would kind of adapt better to make you speed up that process for baseball? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> this is such, it's a tricky problem that this diverse forcing and yeah. baseball too. I can imagine it's a huge problem. You have kids that want to play baseball all year round and they right. have the opportunities to now making them do this is tricky. I don't know. It, it's a good, I'm a, 
I'm a big believer in um, things that help with kind of body awareness. So martial arts, mm-hmm. gymnastics might be a hard sell for a lot of sure. but, but baseball but players, but it would help. Um, any kind of movement sport. Because um, I think the kind of more awareness you have of your body is going to help you do those kind of self-organization or technical changes. Like if I know where my hip is and I can sense where my arm is, a lot of people, I, I'm terrible. I have terrible <laughs> at that. I, I play, grew up playing hockey in Canada. So um, I don't have any, you know, good awareness of that. So um, I re- I'm really a b- believer that that would help um, an athlete in the long run. If they could, um, sometimes we call it kinesthetic awareness or body awareness, feel, all these kind of things. So something that would encourage that, I think would be a, be a help. Yeah. Right. And obviously, oh, sorry. Main, so obviously a main thing we're trying to get out of diversifying is enjoyment and, and, and getting them away from their main sport. So I think just, you know, having fun is probably, <laughs> uh, you know, is a, is a good qual- uh, qualification for it. I'm going to get to a couple more questions. We got about okay. five to eight more minutes left. Appreciate your time, Rob. You've been great. This is fantastic. And I know this, can, you can, you know, you do a show every week on, on the, all this stuff. So I encourage people to go to the podcast and we'll put it all on the show notes. Also, I want to get to a couple questions, but before I get to the next question, I just wanted to ask for somebody, cause you, you hear this with young, with parents a lot, ask this question. When you've got young kids that are just starting off playing, um, how do you know if they throw righty lefty, bat righty lefty? And um, it's always a question that comes up. And do you make the decision for them according? I'm going to throw this at you too, according to their visual aspect. You know, their dominant eye and all that stuff. Yeah, that that's a great. <laughs> Is uh, that a question. show in itself? That's a, yeah, that's a tricky. <laughs> um, so I did a I did an episode a few uh, weeks ago on eye dominance. Um, and there is, there's some hint of that having a, your dominant eye is your lead eye, I think is, is in your head is better. Um, but it's not really strong. I think it's not something to make a huge worry about. Um, handedness, yeah, is especially what side you hit from. Yeah. Um, it is, is really, cause I'm right-handed and I, I hit left-handed in baseball. I don't know how I got that. And, um, so I don't know. I don't know. That's a really tricky question. I don't know whether it would be worth letting them switch in at the start. Or just try, or try just both find. of them yeah, and see which yeah. one they're better at. And folks, yeah. just so you know, Rob, you know, had no clue what questions I bring up. We don't cover <laughs> them ahead of time. Yeah. And this is what's great about the show. I don't do that. I mean, I, we get a general idea what direction we're going, but sometimes I may ask a question that's not relative to your exact study. So I understand that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, I actually ahead. believe I actually believe that bilateral I call it sometimes bilateral training might be beneficial. Yeah. Some, so not switch hitting for the sake of using it in the game, but just getting better balance and absolutely and the different. So I think yeah, letting them explore. Um, but yeah, that's a tough. You know, in certain sports like golf, we force you to do it because of most cases they're 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 not going to have left-handed clubs lying around. Right. So. Um, but that, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't have a super great answer. <laughs> and that's okay. But you, you've yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. this on your show. And, you know, I just had a show recently with somebody. We're talking about golf, the mental aspect, because, you know, in golf, mental, you talk about being mentally tough. Mm-hmm. You got to be mentally tough in golf. And most people aren't because their clubs are being thrown all over the place, um, <laughs> you know, me included. But, you know, um, have you heard of, of, of slow practice and made famous by Ben Hogan? Um, utilized by and you spoke about pianist and violinist I believe one time guitarist and other musicians mm-hmm. Hogan used it in golf any possible impact to learning baseball skills like this 
So doing a really like slow motion kind of swing. To kind yeah, of it was a Ben Hogan uh, theory, I guess, utilized that was utilized by pianist and violinist. Um, Hogan used it in golf. And he, to, I guess, yeah, to slow down, it sounds like to do it slow, super slow. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't on the surf. Um, my gut reaction is no, because um, you want to kind of keep the the timing is so important in the, all these actions. But maybe in terms of that feel I was talking about, so you mm -hmm. can like feel um, certain positions and for certain feel, you know, I think it could be useful that way. But in general, I would say you want to keep it at the top speed. I know one of the like Franz Bosch, I think, talks about keeping yeah. everything at full speed. I think. Mm -hmm. If I remember. <laughs> so, I mean, if I, took a, if I took an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, that was, let's just use the example I'm hitting, and instead of throwing a ball, but I'm, I'm actually, he's just going to swing, right? Mm -hmm. And he's going to do it just super, like in slow motion. And then, you know, his own natural motion. We're not going to tell him what mm -hmm. to do. Um, and then kind of speed up that process. I'm just throwing this in there. Just speed mm -hmm. up the process a little bit at a time to understand and get that feel that you talked about. Yeah, I think you could. So sometimes we call it, you know, simplifying. So I think you might you could do that with lower speeds, mm -hmm. uh, lighter balls, uh, things like that. So um, changing the constraints again to try to to get people to do that instead of just doing this kind of rehearsal of it without without the ball um, and trying to do this unnatural slowing. I think you could make them do that kind of based on the the situation you put them in. Maybe would be better. You know, you've also said. Uh you can overtrain in sports kind of give a, an overview of what you mean by that overtrain. Um, so I think you can, well, I think a lot of the training, like I said, is not really, if you're really focused on getting better, a lot of it is inefficient and really not going to help. Uh, it's just, just kind of killing time. So, so you're saying repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so repetitive training. Yeah. And I think it could repetitive training, you know, likely could lead to in injury too. So I think, I think that's mostly what I'm talking about um, in terms of, of training. Gotcha. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, let's end it on this. Rob Gray's um, final comment, you know, give us, uh, give us some, uh, another nugget when it comes to, you know, uh, teaching young kids or teaching older players, the process of practice, practice organization, whatever it may be, whatever you want to throw out there. Yeah, I guess I would go back to that coach as a designer kind of idea. Try, use it as an experiment. Yeah, add some variability. Try things. Um, uh, you know, be willing to do that. I think you could get a lot, of, a lot out of it in your practices. I think it makes practices more fun for kids too. Um, when you shake things up a little bit, and not they're not repetitive drills are pretty boring, <laughs> uh, right? So adding a little. So I, I would really encourage people to to kind of explore as a coach. Um, you, you know, in the design of practice sessions. All right, that is it. That's Rob Gray, Arizona State University professor. And he's also at Twitter at Shaky Weights. But don't worry, we will email that to you and also uh, put it on our show notes. We'll have all that so you can get a hold of him. And I encourage you to go to his podcast. Check it out. Um, I, tr I try to listen to it as much as I can when I'm walking my dog. I'm exercising, doing all my routines that I do. So, again, Rob, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Never met you. but. I know everybody that you've been with, you know, with the Netherlands and also all the guys at the Florida and Texas baseball ranch. You guys have done a great job. Great. Thanks, Pete.
All right, folks. Okay. Rob Gray, Pete Caliendo here. Special thanks to Brian Crocker, producer with the Lineup Media Group. And also special thanks to everybody in the U.S. and around the world joining us, not only on Zoom, but all of our social media. Special thanks to Brent Strom and also Jim Jones for their questions. Felipe, I'll get to yours and get back to you. All right, folks, this is Pete Caliendo, Baseball Outside the Box, the show that loves to interview baseball's best coaching minds who love the challenge of status quo. God bless you. Stay safe. We're going to see you on the field. Thank you to all our listeners. We'll see you on Monday's show. This has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at LineUpMedia.fm.